Welcome to the Green Goddess Podcast, where we explore sacred medicine and the evolution of consciousness. I'm your host, Tara. Today, our guest is Dr. Rachel Harris. She's a psychologist with a PhD and a background in clinical and research applications of psychology. She did a large-scale study of ayahuasca use in North America, and she's the author of a wonderful book called Listening to Ayahuasca. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you, Tara. Glad to be here. I'm really excited to have you. I loved your book when I read it. It came out just a few years ago, and I've heard you on other shows and really enjoyed what you had to share And one of the things that has been so interesting to me about your interviews and about your book was hearing that you actually drank ayahuasca a number of times and you were guided to do a research study of ayahuasca in an ayahuasca ceremony. That's correct. So tell us a little bit about what the study um, shared and, and why you were guided to do it. Well, there's sort of an ironic story here. So in, in uh, after a couple of years of drinking, maybe just two, it was kind of at the beginning, um, I, I got the message, I mean, very clear auditory message, do the research. And my response was, oh, okay, well, I would know how to do that. I mean, how many people who are sitting around in the circle I happen to be in or, you know, in general... Um, could do do the research, and there's probably a handful with with both elements, the experience and the and the research capacity. So I thought, well, that's a good idea, and so I just sort of took it on. I didn't have many questions about it. Uh, you know, I just took on the mission, honestly, rather unconsciously, without without questioning it, without thinking about it very much, and then a, a few months later. I got in another ceremony, I got a message that said, um, talk to Lee. And I, I answered like a teenager. It's like, been there, done that. I talked to Lee already. I mean, I'm still not really questioning this voice. And then the voice comes through and says, no, talk to him again. And so Lee happened to be my mentor my mentor, my research mentor's mentor. So it was like a generation back. So at that point, he was about 86 and a very prestigious nationally known psychologist. Um, and so I had told him once about the study I was doing and he was interested. And, and then I called him back and, um, you know, and we'd have this, you know, he, he'd known me since I was in my late twenties in, in the research office. And he always had a special interest in me because um, I had the messiest desk. So he figured I would be a good researcher because I was very curious. I had hmm. lots of piles of papers. And, and so he had sort of picked me out as being, you know, a good protege in, in, in research. And we'd always wanted to do a study together. So I called him back and I, and I literally said this to him. I said, Grandmother Ayahuasca told me that I should involve you in the research. And there's a little pause on the phone. <laughs> he's been retired for a decade or so, and he's won all kinds of national awards and recognitions from the American Psychological Association, and this is what I'm saying to him. And he says, okay, good. <laughs> and so together we did the study, and it was it, we both just enjoyed being together, working together, talking about things together, and and... And we both took the messages I got very seriously. So when I got a message, again, this was not even in a ceremony, but it was the same voice. Um, I got a message about the data analysis. Now, now this is really a sophisticated kind of thing. And it was that there was uh, an alternative way of interpreting the data analysis that did, that wasn't, uh, if, well, forgive me, I'm just going to go into this a little bit. Um, I actually had a comparison group of people on a, on a traditional Catholic retreat. So they were the comparison group who took the same psychological test as the ayahuasca participants. And um, there was a statistical difference between the two with the ayahuasca subjects um, coming out with, with better scores, you know, um, 
feeling, you know, better self-esteem and, and, and just better mood and that kind of thing. And I thought, you know, I was very competitive. I thought, oh, we won. You know, we came <laughs> out on top. <laughs> but if you really look at the numbers, the difference was between like maybe a, the ayahuasca people responded with an average on a five-point scale of like a 3.8, and the Catholic retreatants maybe had a 3.3. And so if you really think about that, that's clinically not a huge difference. And so the voice was saying, it's, you got a statistical difference, but it's not an important clinical difference. And I'm like, oh, I never thought of it that way. So I call up Lee, and now again, I'm saying to him, Grandmother Ayahuasca told me to look at the, the data analysis a different way. And so Lee, who's very um, careful about these kinds of things, says, okay, all right, well, let me think about it, and I'll, I'll call you back in a couple of days. And so he thinks about it, and we were both in agreement that Grandmother Ayahuasca was actually correct. And so that's how I wrote it up, that there was a statistical difference, but not really a clinical one. And, and really, so the conclusion was that the ayahuasca ceremonies resulted in the same kind of spiritual benefits and psychological benefits as a traditional Catholic retreat. It was a mix of a weekend of meditation and talks and readings and time in nature that, that it, was, it really indicated that this was a, a, a comparable spiritual experience. And I think that was very important in the sense of, um, in some sense of protecting the ayahuasca ceremony as a, as a legitimate spiritual experience without it being um, part of a religious church, but that an indigenous experience is, 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 has very similar benefits. And so that's, that is how we wrote it up. And I didn't, what was interesting to me was I didn't really think much about I'm getting these messages, they're helpful, I'm doing the job, I felt like I was being a good soldier. I mean, this project took three years or so, and then another year to write it up and go through the publishing process. It was in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs in 2012. And um, I just didn't think much about it until I really was starting to work with the responses, with the, data, the raw data. And when I found the three-quarters of the people, so that's 54 people out of 81 subjects, 54 said that they had an ongoing relationship to the spirit of ayahuasca. And then I thought, oh, I'm not the only one. I mean, I must have been very egotistical about the whole thing, thinking she was only talking to me. Oh, we all have, three-quarters of us have this. It's all right, it's not everyone, but it's three-quarters of us is a lot that it's an ongoing relationship, and that opens up all kinds of ways of thinking about the plant the, as a plant teacher, as a relationship, as medicine, as ongoing beyond the ceremony. I mean, it's just a whole different way of looking at things than at, at these entheogens, especially the plant ones, as opposed to the current medicalization. Uh, right. in the psychedelic renaissance. They don't ask this question. Do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca? It's the ongoing nature of the relationship that is really key. I like that you're pointing that out. Yeah, that's true. I think that, the, as you called it, the psychedelic renaissance, right, is at the moment, yeah, it, it is, um, right, sort of being driven in a more um, materialistic way in, this, in, in terms of um, looking at the chemicals involved and how they're affecting our brains and how they can heal us from chronic problems like depression and anxiety and PTSD, which you looked at too. But, um, right, but what's interesting is that the spiritual or mystical aspect of the experience is consistent. It's more common than uncommon. Right. 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 And you were talking, too, about how uh, there's a therapeutic value in that. Yes. And so there's a lot to understand about that. And um, I only asked that question not because I knew, but because um, I interviewed a couple of um, well-trained Western shamans. I mean, people who have spent years and years in training. 
and one of those people was a very intuitive woman, and uh, she told me to ask that question, and and it was a key question, and obviously, the academic research teams have not consulted with um, some of these um, shamanically trained people who have been working for decades with the medicine or the, the group who have been working underground for decades. They did not bother to bring them into the design of the research studies. Right. And so do you think that the reason you did was because you had experienced um, working with people like this in, in ceremony and you knew their value? Yes, and... Um, And, uh, and I, I wasn't prone to the uh, academic narrow viewpoint. You know, the, it's a, it's a, the academic teams have not reached out beyond their own academic world to more experienced people. Okay. And, and, and there's a certain egotistical um, uh, lack of humility in that okay yeah so it's I, so I really do criticize them for it now there were two studies done I think published in 2018 by the Hopkins team and um, and they were uh, internet studies so it involved I don't know a thousand or so you know large 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 study maybe 1200 subjects responded anonymously on the internet and so it covered an array of LSD, psilocybin, and ayahuasca covered an array of different entheogens. And, and the question was about, did you have an encounter with an entity did, who, who So clip relationship between the therapist and the client. Healing happens within a, a relationship. And these were researchers, not clinicians, and they really didn't think outside their own box. So here they made the same mistake. So I, I really, you know, and all they would have had to do was bring in some of the psychedelic elders in the community who have been working with these medicines for decades. And all they would have had to do is bring them into the research team for conversations, consultations, questions and answers. All they would have had to do was talk to them, and they didn't do that. So they missed an important research opportunity okay so yeah so that is particularly unique about your study and valuable in your study your study also found that there was in general just a really uh, powerful therapeutic value to the ayahuasca yes and, and many studies find that but the 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 you know i did lots and lots of interviews with people and the, it was the way they talked about their relationship with the spirit of the plant that was very therapeutic. And um, I began to hypothesize, and I don't have data to support this, but it, it sounded very much like that relationship was healing early attachment um, trauma, neglect, not abuse necessarily, but certainly neglect or deprivation or in, an insecure attachment. So that there was something about being able to connect to the spirit of ayahuasca through meditation, dreams, quiet times, nature. There was a sense that people said they could call on her anytime and that she would respond in, in ways that were helpful. I, I, 
many people said kind, supportive, loving, caring. But other people said, no, she was very, um, sometimes she was critical and harsh and demanding. But there was a sense that it was always therapeutic, that the intention was for the person's greater good. Now, I have to tell you, I presented along, alongside Jeremy Narby, and he really objects to this personification of the plant spirit of ayahuasca and calling it um, grandmother, because many tribes in, in the um, Amazon basin consider the, the plant spirit to be masculine and not necessarily, not necessarily a grandmotherly type. You know, it can be masculine and, and almost even threatening. So there are different um, visions of this plant spirit, different ways of, of uh, projecting onto whatever this is. And, um, but in the colloquial North American Western people, they, they often talk of grandmother ayahuasca. And sometimes she's a harsh grandmother and sometimes she's a supportive one. But the feeling is that this is the relationship that in an ongoing way, beyond the ceremonies, that is very healing. Yes, and I like that you're sharing that this is just one common interpretation of, of the plant spirit. For me, um, when I've sat with the medicine, I, I actually perceive her as a younger woman, not grandmother at all. She's my peer in age. I mean, obviously ancient wisdom, but her persona as I experience her is, is probably in her thirties or forties. So I wouldn't call her grandmother myself, right, but I right, know that right. other, many other people do experience her that way. So right. yeah, I mean, some, some just call her mother or madre. Right. Right. So there's a range, but, but, there is a sense of an ongoing relationship with an unseen other. Yes. And I appreciate yeah. what you're sharing about um, from your perspective as a psychologist about how that can actually heal our early childhood when we may have not had that kind of consistent, um, secure maternal presence. And, and that can cause a lot of issues. Um, so right. that's really, really right. interesting and right. insightful. Right. Um, and, there, and there's some research done in the psychology of religion where they look at people's relationship to God or Jesus. I mean, it's very traditional in evangelical circles. There's a personal relationship with Jesus and they, they see it as healing attachment disorders. Yeah. And that's, so that's mm -hmm. really what I'm basing this on. And that's where the actual theory and, and research findings are. And I'm saying, well, I, you know, I'm not saying the spirit of the plant is a God, but it's a relationship with an unseen other that is also healing of attachment disorders. Yes, I think that's a really fascinating insight. Um, and one of the other things that you've shared is in your work is the importance of integration. And what I'm talking about is how we handle our lives after a ceremony. Because there's a lot of people that drink ayahuasca or use other psychedelics regularly and they think that that is sufficient for healing themselves psychologically when it's really just the beginning of the work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, if someone's doing a lot of different medicines every weekend, you know, one on top of the other, basically, it's, um, it gets very jumbled. And I've, you know, I've seen um, indigenously trained shamans who will say, well, here's what one shaman said, and this is the San Francisco Bay Area, so there are, you have lots of options every weekend. Oh, yeah. And basically said to someone, um, go do whatever you want, but when you're finished, you know, when you're ready to focus, then come back to my circle. But I don't want you mixing all these medicines and bringing it into our circle. Mm -hmm. So there is some sense of uh, kind of respect for the different pathways. And they are different, and the relationships are different. And, you know, I, I, so I've sat through a lot of um, conferences, and what I've learned is that in many conferences, they have a panel of veterans, maybe, who are using ayahuasca for healing. And it's, they are the ones who speak from the heart about integration. Hmm. And um, be, partly because they have 
suffered so much and they know the work continues that it that that the ceremony helps but the work continues when you go home and they talk about the work they do every day and that it's it's supported and stimulated by the ceremonies but that the ceremonies are not the final healing experience that it it's what we do when we come home and they they are the one not the psychologists not the researchers it's the veterans who are really speaking from their own broken hearts um that that talk about what integration looks like and it is really how we live every day right and that's an interesting insight you're talking about war veterans yeah, there were some old guys, you know, from Vietnam, Vietnam veterans getting up and talking about this, but a lot of Gulf War veterans from the early 90s on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they are, you know, very, um, they've really suffered their whole lives, and, and, and they speak very much from the heart. I mean, they had, you, you know, one group, it was a panel of four with a, a VA psychiatrist interviewing them, and they, it was a beautiful presentation. And they took a photo of their medicine cabinet. So these, they had, one of them, this is one person, had 21 prescriptions from the VA Whoa. for different psycho, uh, psychoactive drugs. Whoa. So it's a medicine cabinet full of bottles with prescriptions, you know, written on them. And what they did is they used, um, this was the pattern amongst them, they would use marijuana to get off the the, the prescription drugs. And then when they were clear of that, then they would go do the ayahuasca ceremonies. And that's where the depth work happened. Interesting. So it's very interesting that that's how they did it. Yeah. I, uh, it's a, it's a, this is a medical failure to, to look in someone's medicine cabinet and see that they've been prescribed 21 different prescriptions. That's a medical failure. I mean, I've the research office I worked in was in the, in a VA hospital and connected to a medical school, and I've gone through a, lo- a lot, a lot of medical records, and 21 prescriptions to one person is a medical failure. So this is, you know, they're quite moving when the veterans get up to talk. They have a lot of experience, heartfelt experience. Mm-hmm. Talking about the value of working with ayahuasca their own, and their own life how they've suffered and how you know what different things they've tried and and what it comes down to right and they are they were the in in all the conferences i've been in it's been a lot over the past four four years or so they speak um the most accurately about the the work of integration and in, if, if i can go on a little bit and this was um this is a project i'm working on now and and what I did was I interviewed women elders from the psychedelic underground. So my criteria was that they had been in working underground for at least 20 years. Now, these people do not speak at conferences because they never speak anywhere because it's illegal what they're doing. But they have all gone through long apprenticeships and supervision and training. Many of them have been working for 30, 40 years. These are the people who really know, um, who have really lived a life with entheogens and working with people with entheogens. They are not therapists, and they're not shaman exactly, but they're guides. They're psychedelic guides with very, very good training. And so they're different from the psychedelic therapists who are involved in the research studies. They're, it's, they're really different. It's a different group. Okay. And um, and there's one who's an elder of the elders, so she's in her late 80s. And I had interviewed a couple times, and, and I said, you know, I just have one more question. You know, can I call you? And so I called her, and I said, I think, I think everything you've said to me comes down to a, a very high level of being responsible for yourself. And she said, yes, that's it. No more victimhood, no more blaming. It's, it's that you take full responsibility. It doesn't mean that you created what's happened to you. It's not, it's not that blaming thing that sometimes gets misinterpreted, that it's 
your fault you got cancer because your thoughts weren't positive enough. It's not like that. It's that this is what's happening and, and you are responsible for your response to it and your attitude to it and your actions dealing with it, that you are fully responsible. And I thought, you know, that's everyday work. That's, that's something we have to think about and keep central to our everyday lives. And it's very close to Viktor Frankl's logotherapy. You know, he was, um, he, he, was uh, he became a psychiatrist after years in a concentration camp where he developed the concept of um, you, you can't change what's happening to you, which obviously you can't in a concentration camp, but your attitude toward what's happening, you have some power over that. And so it's a very interesting approach to trauma and challenges in life. And, um, and here it comes again from this elder of the elders. Mm. And it's, uh, I don't, I, you're too young to know about Fritz Perls and Gestalt therapy, I think, but some people are still doing Gestalt therapy. But he had a very um, sort of, you're responsible for yourself and I'm responsible for myself. And if we meet, okay. And if we don't, who cares? It was sort of a misanthropic approach to self-responsibility. But the, the, the psychedelic elders, especially who come through this, this one lineage, have a very kind, um, supportive sense of self-responsibility, that it's a process of spiritual maturation to take that level of responsibility for one's life. And, uh, and I, I really see this in the veterans because out of their desperation, they had to come to a different relationship to their own suffering and their own trauma and how they're going to live with it. Mm. And the medicine helps them, and they do the work. Mm-hmm. I'd like to pivot here a moment and just ask you a question that's been on my mind. After reading your book, you shared, again, your book came out a few years ago, 2017. And in your book, you talked about having some difficulty reconciling the academic part of yourself um, with the mystical experiences that you are having, the magical experiences that you are having. Like you're sharing... Uh, you know, ayahuasca telling you how to do your study and very specific things about who to work with and the interpretation of results and things like this. And I'm wondering, you know, it's been, um, what, five years now or so. And I'm wondering, has that changed? <laughs> have I progressed? <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you, well, that's, I mean, I don't want to put a judgment. It's not, no judgment, but have you, have you changed at all? Yeah. Have you experienced any, any difference there? Well, you know, I'm, it's still difficult for me, but not as difficult. And, um, and I, I think part of what happened, uh, was I, I just, I sort of got exhausted, um, asking the, the existential question, is this real or not? I mean, I finally decided that was the wrong question. You know, whether this voice is real, whether this <clears throat> unseen other is real, that it's the wrong question. The question is much more, what what do I learn from this relationship with an unseen other? What how how does this relationship help me? How do I how do I grow from it? What do I learn? What do I how what does it help me to do? Um, so I began to ask different questions. But if you really push me, it's still very hard for me. But to tell you the truth, I ha you know, the, the, the book I'm working on with these, um, the elders in the psychedel from the psychedelic underground, they've done every medicine. Uh, you know, they've, they've done all levels of doses, and they're, they're just very, very experienced, which I'm not like that. I mean, they've really done everything. And so I thought, well, you know, I've never done ketamine. I should really, I'm writing this book about these, this whole range of experiences. I should at least know a little bit about ketamine. And so I, I have friends who run a clinic, and I, I went to their clinic, and, and the 
experience I had under a ketamine session, it was the four or five hour um, experience. So it wasn't one of those lunchtime things. Um, the experience I had was so clearly uh, in other realms of, of being that that moved me out of my doubting more than anything, I think. Wow. Even more than ayahuasca. Yeah. Ketamine. Was, so that's what shifted you. Th I think that's, that's what shifted me. And then I'll confess to something else. And that is that through a, a good friend of mine who's studying with some Peruvian shaman, and they're from the Shipibo tribe. Uh -huh. And in that tribe, it's traditional often that the shaman drink ayahuasca and the patients don't. I mean, mm -hmm. these are... You know, when, when ayahuasca is used for healing in, in the jungle, it's often like a medical, it's a, it's a medical clinic almost. People come in for healing. And so not everybody drinks, but the shaman drinks to sort of open the portals. Right. And so what developed out of this close friend of mine studying with the shaman is they started doing this family of shaman, three, three family members started doing virtual ceremonies so they would drink <laughs> and we would be on zoom i know this sounds crazy and this is actually what no you know also it, really moved me it doesn't is, it's interesting um, it sounds like remote healing yeah exactly and so we were each in our own homes it was during covid so we were i mean there were some people in europe in the ceremonies too and so it was, it was it, the, the distance, the location didn't matter. And they would do, um, they, each of the shaman would sing to each of the participants. And, you know, in the Shipibo um, tradition, it's the, it's the Icaros that are really doing the healing. And all I can say is it absolutely works over the internet. And I think this also just blew my mind, frankly. So it moved me out of my, um, you know, my my old world view, where that was much more materialist. This just blew everything apart. And and what the the elder shaman in the group, when he first sang to me, it felt almost like uh, a surgical, you know, a, a a surgical opening. And then he sang into the opening a surgical opening of my torso, and then he sang into that inner space of my body. I mean, it was very somatic. And um, and I felt it helped. I, I was recovering from some major surgery and, I mean, you know, medical surgery, and I felt that it really helped with the healing. And I think this, this just... Um, <clears throat> just moved me out of my old ways of thinking more than anything else but what you're asking about is not just my my progression of thinking but how do we shift cultural worldviews it's a really big question oh well no I'm really just asking about you personally because I think that the what I'll say about that is that I think that the cultural worldviews um, are just manifestations of the collective and that as as uh, individuals in the collective and thought leaders shift, automatically, I think the culture shifts over time. I'm not a person that thinks we have to convince others of our particular perspectives to enlighten others at all. I think that the culture shifts that we're looking for are really um, as within, so without, you know, like Gandhi said, uh, be the change you wish to see in the world. I really believe that those of us who are called to be the spiritual pioneers are actually making powerful changes on a metaphysical level that affect the rest. That's actually something I got in an ayahuasca ceremony. Interesting. Yeah, what, Interesting. I, what I was shown in an ayahuasca ceremony was that um, those of us who are actively doing the work have been metaphysically weighted to carry more impact um, in the human collective. We have more spiritual power. We have more, literally more creative power. And it's impacting uh, the collective. There's also this idea about, um, maybe you've heard about it, 100 monkey theory, I think yes, it's called. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah it's so 100 monkey theory, right, is that there's apparently been some actual studies done that show that there are culture shifts um, among 
groups of monkeys, when a critical mass is reached, it automatically transfers somehow psychically to all the monkeys, even the monkeys that don't know these monkeys, the pioneer monkeys. So I I really believe that. I know that has been somewhat um, controversial, but I got that in ayahuasca ceremony, and I believe it completely. (laughs) So no, I I don't feel... Oh, yeah. Point of view. <laughs> well, you know, yes. And that's also something I've learned in ayahuasca ceremony is that our, our work um, is our consciousness. What you're saying about taking responsibility for how we respond to life and interpret life, it's all consciousness. And it's so important to choose an empowered perspective and positive perspectives on everything because that's our creative power and it does create and impact the the planet and even the health of the planet in fact once in a ceremony i was personally shown that negative thoughts actually manifest pollution because i had some negative thoughts during i had self-critical negative thoughts during a planet healing ayahuasca ceremony and they spoke to some of the spirits spoke to me and they were like you're polluting don't do that i was like oh my god i'm not i don't want to manifest pollution oh my god so I really do think that the more um, positive perspective we choose creates health and well-being on a much bigger scale. I really do believe that. So I personally think it's not that important to persuade or enlighten the masses all. I think um, just those of us who are genuinely motivated and, and inspired to do this work, this inner work and this pioneering work, really are making enough of an impact to shift the whole world. And... Um, I love what you shared about the virtual ayahuasca ceremony. That's fascinating. I've never heard of someone doing that. No, not like I that. Either. I have heard yeah. about it with other medicines. I do I do all my um, intuitive energy healing work, shamanic healing by phone, um, Reiki, all of it by phone. So I'm familiar absolutely with, uh, with right. that aspect. But to hear it actually as medicine work is a whole other level. Um, right. And that's amazing. And and what I would think about that, my interpretation of the how would be using the quantum field. I feel like ayahuasca opens us up and helps us to access the quantum field on a certain level where we can um, really transcend time and space as limitations, which is something we can do through other types of metaphysical work, too. But um yeah, that's not surprising to me once you've shared it, but it is surprising to hear of it happening with traditional <laughs> Shipibo shamans. That's amazing. That's right, really, really right. cool. And I'll share another little piece of it, because this is a, a family. It's a younger brother, an older brother, and the older brother's wife. And uh, sorry, I just needed some water. What's really interesting to me is um, they have... They, they meet and discuss the people in the group and decide what they're going to do. So there was one ceremony that there was a, a, a friend of mine in the ceremony. I wasn't there. And I, I know about the, that they plan things because my friend who's studying with the younger brother shaman, you know, he's explained it to, to my friend. So I have sort of inside information about how they're working. And they, the three shaman, decided to focus on this one person in the group, my, my friend. And my friend's experience of it is that they each, when each different shaman began to sing to each person, they started with this one guy, my friend. And he said, they just blasted me. That's how he experienced it. Now, this is, you know, through, this is on, on Zoom, right? So to use the word blast, they blasted me. He got the power coming through, that their focus was on him. And um, they, the result was a very important clinical um, insight and shift that really this guy, this is someone I know really well, he hadn't been able to, to clear this issue up for himself for years. And this one ceremony really moved him. It really shifted his position. And I thought, now, how does, how does this work? We, we don't know. I mean, the shaman don't think of it psychologically like, like I do, knowing my friend and knowing what his issue was. But, 
but they knew that he needed help of some sort and they they went they coordinated their energy and they went for it and uh and it made a difference yeah so uh Psychic it's kind healing. of an amazing thing to to kind of watch and see how things unfold yes psychic shamanic healing very cool very cool and sound <laughs> healing with the crows yes yes <laughs> so, so, so what's, you what's... know, I'm, I'm much more, I've, I've always had mystical experiences, and so it wasn't that I was having trouble with that. It was the, 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 the activity of spirits in, and communication with spirits that was a leap for me. I see. People who have been raised Catholic, and, um, you know, I've spoken to many who say, well, I don't have a problem with that. There's the Holy Spirit. I've always had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. You know, they grew up with, um, you know, the sense of the Holy Spirit or Mother Mary. They've had, they've had a similar kind of relationship with a religious spirit in their lives before. But I, I grew up in a in an intellectual agnostic family, uh, and so I didn't have that. So but, the problem was that these beings are invisible. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that makes sense. But that's really cool yeah. that you've since had some mind-blowing experiences that were so yeah, real yeah. <laughs> and impactful that now the uh, the doubting voice just doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> no, no, it, it really is a shift, and it's yeah. And I think you know, the, the, as a psychologist, I've always asked the question: Well, how does this work? How do we get the what's the pathway, the mechanism um, that leads, you know, you take the entheogen and you come out with a therapeutic outcome. What happens in between? And, of course, the research studies have talked about the um, the ego disillusion and the complete mystical experience. But how is that actually working? And I think it's the study at NYU that I think is the most helpful and they, the, the, the work they're doing there is with terminal cancer patients. And the psilocybin experience, um, the, the, the way it's healing is that it, people are less afraid of dying. Their pain is reduced. They're more available to work on relationships as they're, as they're dying. And, uh, and I think there's a, that part of what comes out is a worldview shift that, they have a sense of some some kind of continuity in the afterlife. Right. That it's not just nothing. It's that felt experience of the mystical realm that yes, that's uh, yes. assuaging the fear and, of an end. And that that shifts how they are in this life, even if this life is at the end of life. Right. And the, the, the therapeutic um, benefits look very much like some of the benefits from a near-death experience. If you look at the the, the near-death experience literature and how people change, it, it looks very similar to um, what people get out of a, a, a good psychedelic experience. Right. So, Rachel, uh, you mentioned that you're doing this project that's looking at the wisdom of the uh, women who are psychedelic elders. And um, you, you are also working on a book, or is that the book? That is the book. That's yeah. the book. Yeah. And yeah. Um, can you share but, with us the title yet, or do we have to stay tuned? No, no. The title is "Swimming in the Sacred." Swimming in the Sacred, and that's coming yeah. out next year. It'll be another year. Yeah, it'll be 2023. But there is, I, I mentioned also um, to you before that there's a a book called Psychedelic Psychotherapy, and it's a collection of chapters. And so I, I think I'm the second chapter in that book. And that's an interesting book, especially for therapists, because it's, it's, it, it, all the authors are therapists of some sort or another. So psychedelic psychotherapy. And that's out now? That's out now. Yeah, it's two. Uh, the editors are, uh, uh, both of them are British, a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Great. And what's your chapter yeah. about? Ayahuasca psychotherapy. Oh, Fabulous. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. really been one of your main messages is that when we leave the ceremonies and we are um, coming out of those 
impactful experiences, we, we need support, ideally professional support, to integrate what we've been shown. Because sometimes we're shown in those ceremonies the origins or psychological issues and wounds that we then need to actually unravel later. Um, sometimes yeah. we get actual healing in the ceremony. Sometimes our neural pathways shift and other kinds of amazing things happen. But um, a lot of times we actually really still need support to unpack this stuff and to heal from what we've even just discovered. I've seen people in my own experiences become aware of really terrible traumatic events that they didn't even know about because they blocked them out. Right. And, and you know, what's tricky is not, not everything is exactly true. So it's not that everything you get a message about or experience is accurate. So I had someone come up to me um, to talk to me at a conference, and she said she she um, I forget exactly what happened in the ceremony, but she she got the, the conclusion she came to is that her father had been inappropriate with her sexually, that she'd had an incestuous relationship with her father. She's very very upset. And we talked a bit, and 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 I didn't think it was true. I mean, I, I we really talked for quite a while, and but what I thought the message was, she had an emotionally incestuous relationship with her father, and um, she was just way over. She over idealized him. There are pictures of him all over her apartment. You know, she she'd never been married. He was too big in her life, but it wasn't incest. It was just that she hadn't separated enough from her father. I see. And so sometimes, so sometimes people sometimes, are misinterpreting what they're the intuitive. Yeah, um, that's hit. exactly right. Not everything is is as it seems. You have to work with it. You have to have a sense of the history and the story and how does this fit and what does it mean and and even the shamans will say. You know, go slow and ask, you know, do another ceremony and ask, ask for clarification mm -hmm. and, and use your brain. Think about this. Right. Don't just accept it as, as, you know, total truth. Right. And I think it's just really valuable, um, excuse me, that, that there are now, um, some people who are being trained to actually support, uh, people who have gone through psychedelic or sacred medicine ceremonies and making sense of what they've experienced because, you know, these are um, difficult to describe experiences and they sometimes they really can um, bring a lot of psychological upheaval generally for the good, but sometimes the process is messy. So it's really great that there's an emerging field now of integration support. Yes, and we don't really know how to train people. Because uh, you, a after interviewing these women who have been working for years underground, they were trained in apprenticeship relationships that went on for years. And often, um, you know, they were told, you're ready to work. And they would say, no, I'm not. I need another year. I mean, they were not fast to, to, to start guiding on their own. And then even when they did, they often had had. What, what professionally I would call peer supervision. They could check with each other right, um, or with other women that they knew and ask questions. So there was a lot of collaboration and communication and, and years of experiences. That's not what's happening now. People are doing one-year training program where a lot of it is over the Internet. They don't have a lot of experience with psychedelics, and um, but they're licensed therapist of some sort so they can set themselves up as a psychedelic uh, psychotherapist but they don't have the depth of training and so I just you know whenever you choose to work with a therapist you, you know you really have to be very careful who you're who you're working with it's the same it's always a buyer beware market whether you're choosing a, a you know a journey group a, a shaman or or a therapist it's always be careful are you currently seeing clients in private practice? No, I don't practice? see anyone. Not anyone. I'm very clear about that. Okay. I've retired. I'm just writing. Okay. Okay, great. 
So, um, so going forward, if anyone wants to learn more about your work or get in touch with you, they should go to your website, listening to, to listening to ayahuasca.com. Thank you. Yes. And we should look out for your other projects. So the listening to ayahuasca is the book, which we've been talking about, um, today. And it's a great book. And then you have an upcoming book that's going to be called swimming in the sacred. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And then you also, we can check out the other book that you mentioned, which is Psychedelic Psychotherapy. Yes, and that's out now. And that's out now. Wonderful. So we have lots of great resources. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for being on the show. Um, any last uh, thoughts you want to leave us with? No, that, that's really it. I mean, I'd be happy to put the research article. Um, I'd be happy to send it to you. You could put it on your website if you want. That sounds great. I would love to do that. So... Um, yes. So anyone who's listening, if you go to my website, which is magicandflow.com, you can click on the podcast page and then you'll be able to see the show and the link that Rachel is talking about. The website magicandflow.com is also where you can learn more about my work. Um, you can learn about my transformational courses that train you to become an intuitive healer and embody more of your higher self and activate your spiritual gifts um, and working with me one-on-one and many other programs that's magicandflow.com also i love your support for the green goddess podcast on patreon and that is patreon.com slash magic and flow you can support us for as little as five dollars a month on up to a hundred whatever you'd like to do is deeply appreciated i am grateful for you listening and as i like to say at the end of all of our shows may the plants be with you <laughs>